bring you greetings from Ottawa, Kansas. Usually when I say Ottawa, people think Ontario. Um, and we've brought this nice, windy, warm weather with us. <laughs> we were enjoying all 60s and 70s last week, and actually it was 68 at our house today. So I actually did tilling in the garden on Thursday. So it, spring is coming. I was uh, had a conference in Houston last weekend, and everything there was in full bloom. The roses, everything, the trees are leafed out. And Anyway, God is good to bring the season. Um, before we get into our text, you'll be making your way to Exodus 1 in your Bibles, just to give you a little update on the work in Ottawa. Um, it's hard to believe we'll be in Ottawa nine years this summer. Oh, thanks so much, bro. And um, one of the highlights has been the school clubs. Brenda has had opportunity to work in three elementary schools. Um, right now she has a club at Sunflower, about 30 kids coming to that. And um, she got permission just this last week and we'll be starting a second club at Appanoose. It's a little country school uh, in about two, two and a half weeks. So appreciate your prayers. We have a, the evangelism team at our house. Uh, we get home tomorrow, God willing, around 4.15, 4.30. We have people arriving at 5.30 for dinner. And they're going to be with us for a few days doing evangelism in Ottawa. And then we have follow-up work to do with some of the club contacts to try to get them into an outreach study. We're trying to rent the train museum in Ottawa. They have an audio-visual room and another room that Brenda can use for the children. And we found that through these kids' clubs, it's been a great to have contacts with parents and uh, grandparents. Actually, we have grandparents in our meeting in um, Ottawa that were saved through... Uh, a young man who was seven seven years of age at the time came to Christ, and we got to study with his grandparents, and his grandparents came to Christ. So that's been a real effective um, outreach ministry. So continue to pray for us, um, and as we serve the Lord in Ottawa, somebody asked me, what books did I bring? Okay, I only brought one title today, or this evening, and it's the newer book, um, May We See Christ. And I sent, uh, Jim has a, um, a copy of the Old Testament survey, not the Old Testament survey, the Old Testament series commentary uh, with all 14 volumes. I did bring a few sets of those. So if you would like, uh, this is an 18-year project, and the Lord helped me finish it last June. Uh, it ended up being 14 volumes, 5,400 pages. And uh, if you like the old brethren writers, you'll love his commentary because I tried to read all of them. So if you like Rossier and Dennett and Rideout and Macintosh, Kelly, Grant, Darby, all those guys, tried to Coates, Jukes, tried to bring the best of the, uh, their gleanings and preserve them. There's about 200 contributors to the commentary. And uh, it was just a lovely exercise of my soul spending that time with the Lord and going through the Old Testament. So the book that I brought is uh, May We See Christ, an Old Testament Journey. So um, what I did is I went through the entire set, and anything that has a allegorical, uh, uh, a type of Christ, a shadow of Christ, I condensed that down into 366 two-page devotions. So you can go from Genesis to Malachi in one year and see nothing but Christ day after day. And uh, I'm just praying that this will... Uh, this is what we need in the 21st century is the church to be enthralled with the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of our problems will be solved. So I brought, I think there's nine copies of that back there, and they're, they're uh, $20. If you want the entire set, uh, just talk to me. I have a few sets in the trunk of the car, and those are uh, $139. All right, so everybody in Exodus chapter 1? Oh, that didn't sound convincing. Everybody in Exodus 1? Yeah. All right, good. So... Um, I've been thinking through lessons from the Exodus, and I've just really been enjoying this study. And tonight I want to think with you about four things that God really appreciates, right? Four things that God really appreciates. And uh, we're going to spend our, the bulk of our time in chapter 2, but I just want to give some cursory comments to chapter 1. It says now in verse 1, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. And so we had the twelve tribes, totaling seventy persons. This would be Jacob, his sons, and his grandsons. 
You can find the list in Genesis 46.3 as well. And this is the building of the nation of Israel, coming from Jacob. Now, it's interesting that in the Hebrew Bible, this book is actually called, by verse 1, These Are the Names. Uh, it wasn't until Jerome uh, translated the uh, Hebrew into the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, that this book became known as the Exodus, which describes what happens in the first half of the book. Uh, so we would say Exodus, the Hebrews would say these are the names. Two things that we can really uh, rejoice in in chapter 1. First of all, we have these Hebrew midwives who feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and because of that, they didn't kill the little baby Hebrew boys when they're born. They preserved them. Now, we don't uh, commend their lying. Scripture doesn't commend lying, but Scripture does commend their faith, and they were rewarded for it. So we can rejoice in the courage of those who fear God more than men. Amen? It's funny, I could say amen in Houston, the whole crowd. Amen, down south, it's, uh, this is part of it, I guess. Anyway, uh, another thing that we can rejoice in is, look at verse 7. It says, Israel, uh, they were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. But there rose a new king. After Joseph died, he was second in uh, in leadership over Egypt, um, after a new regime came to power, then the Hebrews became oppressed and were made slaves. And it says in verse 11, they afflicted them with their burdens. In verse 12, they afflicted them. But then it says, the more they multiplied and grew. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. 13, served with vigor. 14, their lives are bitter with hard bondage. Served with vigor, the end of 14. And then we read in verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. So there seems to be this nice, lovely correlation with God's people. The more they're oppressed, uh, the more they're afflicted and persecuted, God uses those things to broaden and better his people and make them more fruitful. And so we can rejoice in our infirmities. I would hate to be an atheist, because suffering, suffering has no purpose, right? But because there is one God who is sovereign over his creation, an all-knowing, all-seeing, eternal, immutable God, then we have great confidence that God uses our suffering to better us, bring glory to himself, and allow people to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, we are on planet Earth for only one reason only. To make God look good. Right? Ephesians 1, we're here for the praise of his glory. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, um, he said, it doesn't matter if I live or die, I'm going to magnify Christ. Well, where is Christ right now? He's in the heavenlies, seated at the right hand of majesty on high. And our job is, whatever situation, we magnify Christ, we bring him in the situation like a telescope so everybody gets to see Christ. And so um, we can rejoice in our infirmities because God is using them to show people Christ through us, to make us more like Christ, and to honor his name. So that's something we can rejoice in in chapter 1. And... Uh, I think I'll just leave chapter 1 now and we'll slow down and get into chapter 2. And the man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. Now we know the man later in chapter 6 is Amram, the son of Koath, who was the son of Levi. And we know that his wife was Jochebed. <coughs> Excuse me, that's Exodus 6, verse 20. So the woman conceived and bore a son... And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, I've always wondered when I read this text, what parents don't look at their little baby and say, oh, you know, right, what a beautiful child. Um, this is interesting because be, uh, the, the act of faith here by Moses' parents gets them an entry in Hebrews chapter 11. They get a verse which basically quotes this verse, but then it adds that they feared God more than Pharaoh. 
they were putting the lives of their whole family on the line by not uh, by keeping their little boy, not named yet, but later Moses, alive instead of uh, having him put to death. But they saw that he was a beautiful child. Um, this is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It first occurs back in Genesis chapter 1. Seven times God said, and let there be, and there was, and then what did God say after there was? It's good, right? This is the same word here. In other words, every expectation that God had for what he created had been met. He was fully satisfied. His expectations were fully satisfied. And so what the text is telling us is that Moses' parents had expectations for their son that would that they felt could be fully satisfied in him. Well, this takes us back because of the mention in chapter Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, the Faith Hall of Fame. It takes us back to what God told Abraham in Genesis 15. So you remember the scene where Abraham parts the animals as God had told him to, keeps the, the, the birds of prey off of them, and then later he kind of falls into a trance of vision, and he sees this burning furnace passing through the parts, and that was God making a unilateral covenant with himself to bless Abraham because of his faith. And he promised Abraham that his descendants would go uh, to another land, and they would be there, but after 400 years of strangership and servitude and oppression, then they would come out in the fourth generation. And I think that Moses' parents knew this promise, and they're probably thinking, fourth generation, Levi, Koath, Amram, Moses. Four generations. And so... Um, maybe God can use our child to bring about his promises. Maybe God can use our child to, to honor his name. <clears throat> so they kept the boy three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Excuse me. I've been talking all weekend. And uh, I would like to suggest to you that this was not a little coffin that she was putting her son in, uh, but this was the best she could do with the situation to put this child into the Lord's hands. What can God do with my child in this situation? And it's evident that she expected God to do something because Miriam, Moses' older sister, I'm guessing her age right around 8 to 10 years of age, um, was, was watching the whole scene. She was standing off a little ways watching what would happen to the little ark that her baby brother was just put into. <clears throat> well, this so happened in verse 5 that the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside and when she saw the ark among the reeds she sent her maid to get it <clears throat> and when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby wept so she had compassion on him and said this is one of the Hebrew children so we're thinking about things that God appreciates the first is um, God appreciates Real faith that takes him at his word. And that's what Moses' parents was doing. Real faith that takes God at his word. God honors that kind of faith as we're seeing now in the story. Jochebed couldn't hide. Can you imagine hiding a three-year-old and trying to keep him quiet? And she did as long as she could. The family's at risk. She committed her son to the Lord, put him in into this little ark and, and committed him to the Lord. She's watching to see what would, God would do through Miriam. And God worked. Just happened at the same time Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the, the Nile. Same time that the ark is put in. They find the ark. They open the ark. And <clears throat> I like to think that about that time maybe an angel kind of poked Moses and he started crying. <laughs> and that's, that stirred up maternal instincts within Pharaoh's daughter. And she had compassion on the boy. 
This is one of the Hebrew children. <clears throat> she knew that this was one of the children that deserved death, that was under the, um, the command, uh, the royal decree that the Hebrew boys should be put to death. Then Miriam, seeing what happens, comes to Pharaoh's daughter, and she says this, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? I think she had someone in mind, right? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. Said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called her child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, So this is Jochebed, Take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I mean, this has got the Lord's signatures all over it, right? So what did Jochebed want? She wanted, she wanted her boy to be with her. She wanted to nurse her child. And that's exactly what the Lord did. Gave back the child. <clears throat> the child now, um, she's taking care of, and she's getting paid to take care of her own child. And the boy is a royal decree for his safety. I mean, it's a win-win-win. God worked the best situation out of this. I mean, she could have gotten an Egyptian woman to nurse Moses, but instead, um, Moses' own mother gets to, to spend those early, probably two or three years with Moses until after uh, the, the baby was weaned. Then, then she's going to bring him to uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I found this very interesting. Most conservative scholars put the Exodus at 1446 B.C. Um, that's based on 1 Kings chapter 6. When you work back 480 years plus, I think it was Solomon's third or fourth year of reign, then you come to a date of 1446 B.C. for the Exodus. Now, <clears throat> Amenhotep first, uh, in the 18th dynasty, ruled from 1545 to 1526. By the way, the 15th and 16th dynasty, the rule in Egypt, there's quite a bit of historical information that suggests that the Hyssos, um, which were um, from the, the lineage of Shem, had overcome the Egyptians and were reigning during the time that Joseph was promoted second in the kingdom. Well, that would make a lot of sense because Joseph was Semitic as well. Then the 17th dynasty passed. In the 18th dynasty, um, we have uh, Amenhotep the I dying in 1526. And the new pharaoh, Thumas I, taking to the throne of Egypt in 1526. That would be the very year that Moses was born, if the Exodus was in 1446. We know that there was 80 years difference there. Now, you can die and go to heaven and never remember any of these dates, but here's what I find is interesting. Um, Aaron's only, Aaron is Moses' older brother. He's three years older. There's no death threat against him. And that would make perfect sense if there was a change in the pharaohs at the, at the time that Moses was um, born. And I, I think that's exactly what happened. Uh, by the way, Amenhotep II... Um, he reigned next from 1450, 1425. That's who Moses will stand up to 80 years later, the most powerful man in the world. And uh, he was known for building treasure cities. So again, I love it when the, the, the historical records, you can just weave them in and see in the biblical record the exact fit. So I would suggest to you that maybe that's why Moses was under a threat of death and Aaron wasn't. All right, so the first point, um, things that God really delights in, things that really please the Lord, faith that takes God at his word, and as a result of Moses' parents having that kind of faith, God is he's honoring his word, he's honoring his name, and he's blessing his people. So the child grows. And at this time, he's actually not named. He's brought back to Pharaoh's daughter, Kamer's son, and she said, I'm going to call his name Moses, because I drew him out of the water. Now, Moses' name means to draw out. Where did she find Moses? In the river. I drew him out. For the Egyptians, the, the Nile was a god. That's where the source of life was. So uh, she drew the baby out of the Nile. And so that's what she called him, to draw out Moses. Moses. 
And uh, that's what he would be known by for the rest of his life. There's several things like this. Manna. God says, I'm going to give you manna, bread from heaven, six days. Not on the seventh day, twice as much on the sixth day. And the morning that, the first morning the manna came, you know, they pull back their tents, doors, and they look out and like, what is it? The ground's covered with this bread. Well, that's what manna means. What is it? And so that's what they called it for 38 years is what is it? They went out and gathered their what is it every morning, except for the Sabbath days. A little bit of sense of humor there. All right, so verse 11 now, we're, dro- we're going ahead 40 years. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, uh, if you go to Acts chapter 7 and read Stephen's little Old Testament survey, where he goes from, you know, through the Old Testament, he's standing before the Samhedrin, the stiff-necked Jews, the religious Jews. They hate that he's preaching Jesus. And he gives them a little Old Testament survey. And in that, he mentions that Moses had an understanding, not only that he was a Hebrew, but that God was using him to deliver his covenant people. Uh, I grew up with the Ten Commandments. And in that movie, Charlton Heston, who played the part of Moses, didn't have any idea that he was a Hebrew. That's not the scriptural uh, reckoning here. Uh, Moses understood that he was a Hebrew. And in fact, he seemed to have this internal understanding that God had given him that somehow he was going to be used. Maybe it was his place, his stature, his fame, his power in Egypt. He was going to be used somehow to deliver God's people. And Stephen says that the Hebrew was being mistreated. It was, it was being wrongfully abused. When Moses jumps into action and he kills the Egyptian. Now, Moses was called to be the deliverer. But did God direct Moses to do what he did? No. I tell young people, listen, if you've got to look this way and that way before you do something, don't do it. Right? And then if you've got to bury it in the sand so nobody finds it, don't do it. Right? So that's just a general rule. If we're looking around to see who's watching us before we do something, that doesn't have a, the, uh, the earmark of God's authority on it, right? So the second thing I want you to think with me about, things that please the Lord, is walking with God in not only in his purposes, but in his ways. His purposes we draw out from Scripture. But his ways, we have to be walking with him and understanding his character. An end does not justify the means in Christian ministry. If we are not reflecting the character of Christ in all that we're doing, we're causing more damage than good. God could use anything to work his will. I mean, he could take, have trees walking around doing things. He could have trees walking around sharing the gospel if he wanted to. But he, he chooses us to do that, Right? And so it isn't that he just wants the gospel shared. It's that he wants everything that's done in the name of Christ to reflect his character. So the world that desperately needs to see Christ sees an accurate image of the Lord Jesus. Right? If we're sharing the gospel and we're using profanity and stuff like that, that isn't going to go very far, right? Um, so we need to walk in his purposes in his ways. I was... I won't tell you where I was at, but I was uh, on the way to a meeting, uh, driving, and I was about 10 minutes out from the, the chapel, and, and I'm, I'm driving along. There's a car about three car lengths behind me in another lane. I'm in the right lane. I'm coming up. The light turns yellow. There's no way I can clear it. So I stop. <laughs> this other car goes <laughs> right through the red. But man, that guy's in a big hurry on a Sunday morning. Well, so the light turns green, and he got caught at the next light, and I caught up with him. I got in the left lane. We both made a left-hand turn. We went another mile, and then we both made a right-hand turn. And we went about another mile and a half. We made another left-hand turn, and he pulled in the chapel parking lot right 
before I did. <laughs> and uh, he got out of the car. He says, well, "I wondered who that was following me." I almost said, "Well, I wasn't always following you, but uh, I didn't." Now, is it? <laughs> does the Word of God command us to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together? Yeah, Hebrews ten twenty five. We need to come together. Um, does the Word of God command us to remember the, the Lord as often as we do this? Yeah, but the Lord doesn't want us running red lights to do that, right? I mean, you, you can't justify the end uh, by taking a means that doesn't honor the Lord. Uh, I was talking with an elder at another meeting, and he said, you know, it's so hard as an elder. I can see the Word of God, and I can see what God wants me to do, but knowing the wisdom of God and His ways of doing it, that's what's the hard part in shepherding. So um, the closer we walk with the Lord, we get his purposes from his words, we're in a sense his, the, uh, his ways too, the ways that he works, what's going to be exalted to him in character. Now, we read on and it says, uh, And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. I think Moses was surprised on two accounts. First, he hid the Egyptian in the sand, and he looked this way and that way, but it wasn't good enough, was it? Somebody else saw, and the thing was known. So I think that was a surprise to him. But I think even a bigger surprise was this, that his own countrymen rejected his leadership. So here he has two Hebrews, brothers, and they're fighting. And he's trying to, to uh, Acts 7 says, bring, make them one. That's uh, Irenaeus, the Greek word for peace. That's what it means. It's two, one. He's trying to make them one again, and they reject his leadership. So I told you about Stephen in Acts 7 where he gives us this Old Testament survey. There are two people that he spends the most time on in Acts chapter 7. First is Joseph, and the second is Moses. If you look through that, it's quite interesting. Over half of that narrative is spent on those two people. And there's a reason that Stephen picks them. It's going to take his... his, um, his indictment against the Pharisees to, to a climax. So he picks Joseph first. Remember, Joseph has this dream. He sees seven stars, the moon and the sun. Uh, the, the sun is Jacob, his father, the moon is mother, his seven stars are sons. And remember what they did? They all bowed down to him. Even Jacob was put out with that uh, dream or vision when Jacob told it to him. His brothers hated him for it. They were jealous. Shall we bow down to you? Okay, he was rejected. And, and they, when they got their opportunity, they wanted to kill him. Reuben uh, comes forward, saves Joseph. They throw him in a pit, figuring out what they're going to do. And while Reuben's gone, they sell him to some Ishmaelites who's taking him down to Egypt as a slave. And he's sold into 13 years of slavery in Egypt. But as a result of interpreting Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh promotes him second in all the land. And for the next seven years, Joseph gathers the grain and so forth. The famine comes. That forces his brothers now to come to Egypt to get grain. And we know the story. In the end, when Joseph's brothers find out who Joseph is, they, I mean, they're falling down and they're honoring and revering him. He's second command in all the, uh, the land. Now, Joseph takes a Gentile bride, right? He has two sons. Um, <clears throat> Manasseh and Ephraim. So he's rejected by his brothers, goes to a distant land, takes a Gentile bride, and then when he's engaged with his brothers again, the second time they receive him. Moses is rejected here in his leadership. What's he going to do? He's going to go in the backside of a desert for 40 years in Midian, and he's going to get a Gentile bride. And after 40 years, God is going to call him and bring him into Egypt in chapter 5, and then the Jews receive Joseph as the leader. You see the pattern. And so that's why Stephen says, you have been rebels from the start. And he tells him, you crucified your Messiah. 
And it's just the same pattern. They rejected Christ's leadership at the first advent, crucified him. Now the Lord is gathering a Gentile bride. He's in a faraway land. And when he comes back the second time to the earth and reveals himself, Zechariah 12.2 says that they'll look up and say, Yeshua, and they'll weep as one who lost their firstborn son. We crucified our Messiah. Centuries of suffering because of our stiff-necked, rebellious nature. And it all come crashing down on them. This is what I love about the Word of God. God interweaves all these stories and so forth all the way through. And they're all pointing to Christ to some extent to help us understand. So <clears throat> Moses, he's, he's shocked that his leadership is rejected. He felt that God was calling him to be a deliverer. Well, God was, but this wasn't the timing. He still had to work with his man. So <clears throat> Pharaoh did hear about this. And he sought to kill Moses, so Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down at a well. Now keep your finger in Exodus chapter 2, and I just want you to flip over to Hebrews with me, and we can see why Moses did what he did. And this is leading us into our third thing that God appreciates. <coughs> I keep trying to cover up my uh, lapel mic, and it's not working. <laughs> All right, so Moses' parents are referred to in verse 23, and then uh, Moses is referred to in verse 24, Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now listen to this. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure, treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That last phrase means he looked to the reward. He knew there was a judgment day. He knew there was an accountability for his actions. And so here's Moses. He's the daughter of, uh, sorry, he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's had the best education. He's got the clout, the wealth, the fame, the power. He's got it all. Anything he wanted, he had. But he knew he's a Hebrew. And so he left all that status and humbled himself and identified with God's covenant people. He counted it better to associate with God's people and to suffer with them than to have all the wealth, everything that Egypt could offer. He suffered the reproach of Christ. Now in 1 Peter 4.14, it talks about suffering the reproach for Christ. We have the opportunity to do both, actually. Uh, when we live for Christ, preach the Lord Jesus, and so forth, and are persecuted for it, that is suffering the reproach for Christ, for his name. That's not what it's talking about with Moses. Moses suffered the reproach of Christ because that's what the Lord Jesus did, right? He was in the heights of heaven and he left everything, his glory, everything, and the Word became flesh. He became incarnate. By the way, the Word became flesh means the Word existed before flesh did, right? The Word came down. I mean, that's a test of, of Antichrist, saying that, that God did not come down and become the Word, the flesh, become a man. And so um, the Lord Jesus identified with those that he came to deliver, just like Moses is identifying with God's covenant people, those who he came to deliver. And that pleases the Lord. When I was down in uh, Wichita about a month ago, um, just the night before I was there, there was a well-known man in the area uh, had started some camps and so forth, uh, had died that night. I had never met the man. His, Hudson Smith is his name. And um, this is what one of the elders in the assembly there said about Hudson Smith. He was never happier than when he was gathered with the Lord's people. He was never happier when he was gathered with the Lord's people to worship him at the Lord's Supper or to hear from 
God's word or to pray together. He was never happier than when he was with the Lord's people. And so we also, it delights the Lord, it, it pleases the Lord when we associate with his people and we go on with God's people no matter what the cost, in their tears and their laughter. Um, we're as, we are as close uh, as it gets to heaven, really. Because here we are, our citizenship is heaven, we're placed in heaven, but here we still are ambassadors down on here in earth representing the Lord. And so it delights the heart of God when we encourage each other, spend time with each other, go on with each other, and uh, suffer with each other the reproach of Christ. Now back to uh, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. So Moses goes to Midian. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water, and they filled the troughs uh, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, or Jethro, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have not, that you have left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Sephora his daughter to Moses and she bore him a son and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I am a stranger in a foreign land. God appreciates faith that takes him at his word. God appreciates when we walk with him in his purposes and ways. God appreciates when we're willing to suffer the reproach of Christ. And fourthly, I want to suggest to you that God appreciates your wilderness journeys. All of us are going to go through wilderness journeys, and they're going to be quite different. You realize Moses lived to the age of 120, and 80 of those 120 years was a wilderness experience, one after another. So he's in the Midian Desert, then he gets called, he goes to Egypt, God releases his people after 10 plagues, wipes out Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, brings them to Sinai, they meet the Lord, um, they, they received the law, but in time, um, they doubted the word of God. They, at Kadesh Barnea, they actually uh, doubted God could keep his word and bring them into Cana, the land of promise. And so God caused them to wander around the wilderness for 38 more years, 40 years total. So 80 years of Moses' life was a wilderness experience. The Egyptians... Um, they said the shepherd was an abomination to them. That was the scum of the earth. That was as low as you could uh, get. An Egyptian, uh, that's what they considered shepherds. Well, what do we see Moses? He's content to live with shepherds. He's, he's being humbled. And notice what he calls his first son. Gershom, a stranger. When God's people feel their strangership in the world, world that is honoring to the Lord. Now, flip with me over to Deuteronomy 8, and I want to show you what Moses says the people of God are to learn from the wilderness journeys. So he's talking, I, I think the whole book of Deuteronomy was probably written in seven or eight days right before Moses died. So he's 120 years of age when he uh, is telling the people this. They're getting ready to uh, go into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And so he's, he's recounting all the things that they went through, what God has taught them. And in chapter 8, he tells them, this is why God led you through the wilderness experiences. He says, and you shall remember in verse 2, that the Lord your God led you, all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. First reason that you experience a wilderness journey, to humble you, 
to humble you. Number two, to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God humbles us through wilderness journeys and he tests our hearts. He shows us what's in our heart. Great examples of this in scripture. Job. God said that Job was a righteous man. He loathed evil. There was none like him in all the earth. That's a pretty high accolade from God. That wasn't a man saying it. God said that about his servant Job. But yet there were things that were lurking in Job's heart that Job didn't even know about. So God brings him through wilderness journey, and at the end of it, after the second visit of God to Job in the whirlwind, Job humbles himself and thus and asks He repents. And in the end, Satan is cast down. God's name is lifted up. Job is better because he understands the depravity in his heart that he didn't know was there, and God blessed him. So win, win, win. But the wilderness journey, the struggle to get there was pretty rough. And I want to encourage you, whatever wilderness journey you're going in, God appreciates it. He's teaching us humility. He's testing our hearts. And then notice this, verse 3, he says, So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so he's, he's teaching them to have dependence upon God. That's the third thing. And the fourth thing, verse 5, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. That's the fourth thing. So these wilderness journeys, God is humbling us because he loves the contrite. He loves the brokenhearted. He loves humility. He says, um, man, uh, Moses was the meekest man on earth. I speak to him face to face as a friend. That's the kind of relationship he had with Moses because he was humble. He's going to test our hearts. Now, flip back to the book of Numbers for a minute, and I'll show you a time that God showed something to Moses through a wilderness journey that Moses didn't know was there. Numbers chapter 11. Verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who were among them, these are the Israelites, yielded, to intense craving, so the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Oh, we remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt. Oh, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Mm, and the cakes in verse 8. But we have nothing but this loathsome manna before our eyes. In other words, God's provision for life for them, they now despised. Why? Because they were comparing what God had given them, where they were at that day, to what they had in Egypt. Uh, this is something that we learn early on in our Christian experience. If we're looking back and down, we're going to complain through life. right? If we're looking down at the world and we're looking back to what we had, then our expectations on Monday are not going to be met because we thought we were better off on Sunday. But if we look ahead and up, we're looking to the character and the promises of God and expecting him to do things, we're going to go through life happy, rejoicing, and thankful. In other words, our disposition shows a lot of what we really think about God and where we're looking. And so Moses, the people of God, they're looking back at Egypt. Oh, they had it so good in Egypt, right? They were slaves. Pharaoh was killing their sons. They didn't have it so good in Egypt. But that's the flesh. It forgets and it lusts. So, here's what Moses said. Moses heard the people, verse 10, weeping through their families. Everyone at the door of the tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, I want you to listen to this very carefully. Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? And you have laid the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them? 
that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the lamb which you swore to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. <laughs> if I found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. What's the key word in this? I, 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 right? He's looking inward for it. Well, obviously, there's no way that Moses is going to find meat for all these people. That's a, Only God can do that. He's going to teach him in the next chapter. He says, who am I to go to Pharaoh? You know what God's response was? I'll be with you. See, it doesn't matter who you are. All that matters is I'm with you in the ministry and, what, and your service to God. And it's the same for us. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter who we are. If we're walking with God and the good of our calling in communion with him, it only matters that he's with us. So this was a very low point in Moses' life, and he realizes his wretchedness. He knows it's not a good attitude, but he's just in a bad way. Have you ever been in a bad way? Two people are nodding ahead. No, we've, we've all been there, right? I'm embarrassed to tell you this story, but I'm going to anyway. Um, I think most of you know the situation in our family. We've got two adult children. Um, ever since they were little kids, all they wanted to do was be missionaries. And those are the two children that God has allowed to afflict with sickness, long-term problems. Praise the Lord, Kate's doing a lot better lately. And um, so we've had, the last year especially was a very hard year with our son Trey. And uh, I won't go into all of that. Um, in the fall, I had five conferences in four weeks, late October to through early November. I think I was only home five days. <clears throat> well, I'm a bow hunter. And that is a really hard time to be doing ministry, right? Uh, that's, especially November, that's like it. That's the best hunting. And so I get home mid-November, and I thought, oh, all right, I finally got a few days here. The rut's coming. And um, I only was able to hunt about three days. And, and I got a sciatic pain in this hip that went all the way to my big toe. And I was under the worst pain I've ever been in my life. I couldn't sleep. Um, I couldn't hunt, <laughs> and um, this went on day after day. Finally, after uh, two spinal blocks, a shot in my hip at the end of December, it was finally getting manageable, and I could sleep in a bed again. I didn't sleep in a bed for like five weeks there. It was the most miserable time, and it's just when I'm starting to get going, I got influenza A. Eight days, I ran this high fever, 100, 102 fever. Trey gets it five days after I do. He runs a high fever for 10 days. 10 days after he gets it, Kelsey gets it. And she had it for 10 days. And all three of us, it turned to double pneumonia. And it was about day eight. I was just in my office, so miserable. This has been two months of misery. And praise the Lord, Brenda didn't get it. She didn't get sick. I was running a fever. She came in. And I had tears in my eyes. And I looked at her. I said, why is the Lord so brutal to us? Well, as soon as I said it, I knew it was bad. <laughs> it was like, Lord, just take my life so I don't see my wretchedness, right? Um and later, I apologized to my wife and the Lord. But today, I'm thankful because the Lord revealed something in my heart that I wasn't aware of, and it wasn't good. See, this is, what, this is why the Lord allows us to go through these wilderness experiences. He humbles us. We've got to be humble before the Lord to be used. He tests our heart. He shows us what shouldn't be there. And there's things in all of our hearts that shouldn't be there. Isn't... Doesn't the Lord have a right to do that, to show us those things? And he wants us to be dependent upon him. And 
he corrects us and chastens us because he loves us. He loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. So I believe the Lord really delights in our wilderness experiences. I don't know what each of you are going through, but I know my God, and I know where he wants to take you, and that's Christ-likeness, which means there's a lot of work to do. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, it's hard at the time, but just thank God for what he's doing in your wilderness experiences ahead of time. You know, Daniel, chapter 6, they signed a decree. Anybody prays to anybody else for 30 days, gets fed to the lions. What's Daniel do? He goes to his home. His windows, I believe, are already open, and he prays, just like he always does. But it, it doesn't say he just praised. It says he gave thanks to God. Now, that shows faith. It, it shows that Daniel trusts his God, that his God's bigger than his situation or, or his wilderness experience. So, back to Exodus chapter 2, four things that God appreciates. He appreciates real faith that takes him at his word. Just trust him. Faith that rises above our, what our senses can verify, what our intellect can verify. God says that that's all a matter. I'm just going to hang on to that with both hands. That pleases the Lord. He delights when we walk with him in his purposes and his ways, understanding that everything that he wants to accomplish needs to reflect his character in it. And he delights when we are willing to suffer the reproach of Christ, identifying with God's people, going on with them no matter what the cost. And he delights in your wilderness experience because he's going to make you better and more like the Lord Jesus Christ through it. Amen? So, we find at the end of the chapter, God, he was well aware, verse 24, of the the groanings of his people in Egypt, and he's going to take action. He's going to uh, rise, raise up a deliverer named Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt and out of bondage. And it's the same for us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, he delivers us out of the bondage of sin. And Galatians 6.14, the cross of Christ carves us out of the world. We become a people unto himself. And so he delivers us from the bondage of sin and he delivers us from the world and we are his people. bought by the blood of Christ, never to go back. And so uh, I hope that these thoughts have been helpful. Um, It's encouraging to see we we still have a God at work. Amen? Father, we thank you for being with us this evening. We thank you for guiding. And I pray, Father, that as we've looked at the text that you've spoken to each one here in a personal way, uh, prodding, encouraging, correcting, exposing. Lord, we give you full permission to do whatever's necessary uh, to make us more joyful and fruitful and more like your son. We pray now that as we have this time of fellowship together, I thank you for the refreshment. Thank you for those who prepare them. I pray, Father, that as we spend a little time um, encouraging each other, that um, we would just delight uh, in each other and going on with each other. I thank you for the assembly here. I thank you for their giving spirit and how they've um, just uh, prayed for us and support us through the years, and so thankful for that. So so lovely uh, to be here in Kenosha with my brothers and sisters. So we give you thanks. It's been a lovely day, and we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.